Thank you for tuning in to the Reclamation Church podcast. My name is John. I serve as the youth director here at Reclamation Church in Plano, Texas. And I'm so excited that you've decided to join us today. For our discussions episode, I will be joined by our worship band member, Brian Hills. Today we are discussing Tom's sermon on Sunday titled, God Grudges. If this is your first time hearing about Reclamation Church, I'd invite you to visit our website at re.church, as well as leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That being said, let's listen in. Well, hello, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. So, Brian, um, for our listeners that have, haven't had the pleasure of meeting you at, like, at all, um, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your testimony? Yeah, sure. So uh, probably most people at Reclamation might recognize me since I play bass guitar most Sundays. Um, I also help out with middle school youth kids. Uh, quick testimony, uh, I was born in Wyoming, um, moved to Texas in grade school. Um, I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was early elementary, but it wasn't really until a summer camp, uh, early high school, that I realized what that meant. Um, and been with the church for quite a while, um, since before middle school, actually, is whenever I started at Reclamation Church. Wow. Back when it was... Mount Crossman Christian Church, back when it was Universal Christian Church, and so... So you're an OG. I'm an OG. I used to live in the neighborhood, uh, so it's been really neat to come back and, like, full circle, uh, work mm-hmm. with the middle school kids that um, that I really relate to whenever I was mm-hmm. growing up in the neighborhood and um, didn't have a bunch of confidence, and it's been really neat to uh, be able to part of those kids. Mm-hmm. So you have, like, a really unique experience where you've been able to now be the, like, leader that you like looked up to the probably leader that inspired you in middle school yeah it's been pretty fun and uh, a lot of people at reclamation if they have not been here a long time actually didn't realize that um, i used to be on staff with reclamation oh yeah way back when (laughs) Uh, back before uh, tom was the you know the preaching minister um, when he was doing the children and youth stuff i was the second hand and so it's been really neat to also see the growth that each of us have had and to be able Mm -hmm. to see what that looks like as he moves into leading more adults, um, and to see me transition towards education, which has been really neat. Mm, yeah. So, can you can you tell us a little bit about your job? Yeah, sir. So, um, my wife and I, we we actually met in college at Dallas Christian College, and we dated for almost four years. And um, during the time of college, and a little bit after, I you know was volunteering very heavily at at, at the time it was Crossbend Christian Church before we changed our name to Reclamation. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I was also working another part-time job for a school district as a computer technician. And so, you know, when software would load, I would, um, you know, sit there, like, listen to lessons. And um, whenever we graduated college and got married, my wife, she started her first year teaching. And so through those conversations and through me experiencing the school district um, from, you know, like the operations side, but then also helping out with the youth here at, uh, at Reclamation Church, um, it was really interesting for me to think about how I could expand my ministry in a way that was not just on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, um, but with a broader uh, sphere. And so mm. 
I started with Uplift Education, which is uh, North Texas's largest charter network, and we, um, with the exception of one school, all serve underprivileged areas um, and in, in efforts to make sure that those kids are getting high-quality education and so they can be accepted to college if they choose to go so uh, by the time they leave in an area that typically is really underserved. Yeah. So I started off as a teacher um, at the school where my wife is at currently, um, taught there for five years, which was the one school that, that is not Title I, and that was in Las Colinas. Um, and then I started graduate school. I was really lucky to get a scholarship through SMU, and so that master's degree was almost completely free. Specifically wow. for urban school leadership. So, so you have a master's degree? Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. I didn't even know that. That's crazy. From the Stangs? <laughs> like, I could never know from hanging out with you that you're actually educated. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, so from there, I became a principal at a school in South Irving. Um, and it was really interesting because I was able to use a lot of the experiences that I learned working with and for the youth to be able to become a lot more exposed to communities besides. Um, my own experience. Um, you know, like I grew up in schools, you know, right around reclamation, and I always felt that our schools were were pretty diverse, more diverse than you know, like what I've come to recognize a lot of other people experience. Um, but we would do a lot of inner city missions and uh, you know mission trips, and that really combined with my educational experience as a as a teacher to realize that there is a lot more tough ministry that can be done um, in other areas besides just a more wealthy suburb. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. when I became a principal in South Irving, and I did that for about five years. Um, but I'm about to begin my fifth year in our teaching and learning team, where I focus on training uh, principals and assistant principals just to make sure that um, they're providing really high-quality, equitable education for our kids. Yeah, that's, that's, and that's incredible. One thing that Erica always says, and, and you probably know this just as well, that's really what I'm getting from your testimony, your story, is that not everybody goes to church, but they go to work and they go to school, and you were able to find in your heart where God was calling you, and you're like, no, I, I need to be over here. I need to be for these students and these families in this community. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. The biggest compliment I think I've ever received um, professionally was not from a manager. It was from a kindergarten parents that one time just out of the blue pulled me aside and said, hey, are you a Christian? And I was like, you know, you have to look kind of over both shoulders a little bit in public education. Yeah. It's a little against the rules, you know, to talk about Jesus. Uh, but I was in front of the kids, and I said, well, yeah, you know, like, what makes you ask? And he said, oh, I just knew it. And then he walked away. You drew the top of the fish and waited for them to <laughs> drive Yeah, you know, the old school Ictrus uh, yeah. with our sandals. Uh, for our listeners who don't get that reference, basically what they would do back in the day is when Christians were kind of getting persecuted, in order to tell somebody that you were a believer, you would draw like the half of a fish, which was just like a curved line, and the other person would meet that line at the point and draw the other bottom half of the fish, and that would let them know that they were a believer, just like you. And so that was basically what we're talking about. Can you, while, while we're on this, I, I do want to kind of like talk talk about your story and, and everything. Can you explain to our listeners what a tier one school is? Yeah, so a title one school is a designation from the federal government for schools that have an average household income that um, means 
a large percentage of the school's families are at the poverty level or just above the poverty level. Mm -hmm. So uh, a difference would be maybe a really wealthy suburban school. Um, a lot of those parents can afford tutoring for their kids. They can afford clothes. They can afford to feed them. Um, but at, at schools that are Title I, they do get a little extra money from the government to help boost learning because you know, kids don't show up ready to learn if they're hungry, if, you know, there are other challenges with their family. And that's not to say that, you know, low-income families cannot provide a really high-quality experience for their kids because that happens all the time. Um, and I'm really glad that that assumption of mine was challenged when I became a principal. Um, but it does mean that a lot of kids do come um, having to work harder to achieve the same goals as maybe their wealthier counterparts. Yeah, that's... I 100% agree. My friend uh, Nick Perez is a uh, library in an elementary school in the Den ISD district. And when Corona happened, when we began in, in March or February, geez, it's been so long. Um, when we began this kind of season, this journey, one of the first things that they, that the principal had a meeting about with staff was how they were going to get weekend meals to their students. And I remember him being very distraught about it because he never like thought about that kind of stuff growing up well he, like he wasn't like he wasn't like super wealthy but he wasn't like super impoverished and so the concept of like a weekend meal that a school provides for like a public school was like so foreign to him and like him being on staff now at a at, at a, not a church at a, at a school like that just like shook him and it, it opened up a really really interesting conversation that we had about that, like about, you know, how much our um, cities, our families in our, our cities um, lean on the education system that we have here. And it is just, it's just crazy how something can happen and we have to shift what we um, value and, and look at what we can provide for families as well. Yeah, I think that, you know, that's something that a lot of people may recognize but they don't think about it. and I can guarantee a lot of our kids from these communities are thinking about it a lot right and so like I knew that there were a lot of kids that would maybe be frequent flyers you know like where they get referred or maybe you know suspended or whatever and I learned pretty quickly as a principal whenever I sat down with those kids there was a lot of those kids the first question I would ask was not like what happened or why did you do it the first question was have you eaten today mm -hmm. um, because, like, I know I get a little grouchy whenever I haven't eaten. Um, I think that whenever you're a growing kid that has to sit still for large amounts during the day, that becomes extrapolated quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. That was um, a awakening experience for me, I think, in terms of plus just this idea that, you know, when I was really young, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. Um, but I realized pretty quick whenever I started working in urban education that there's a difference between growing up as a poor white kid versus growing up as a minority poor child. Um, and those experiences became highlighted a lot more during my work um, mm. with urban education. Yeah, yeah, it's a um, it's a different it's a different ball game. I, I completely understand that. So um, we talked about the families, um, how how they're doing during COVID, and what are some of those things that. Um, we as an education system are focusing on how are you and your wife doing during the COVID season how are you guys getting getting by yes so we we talk pretty often like we kind of hate it but we kind of love it too <laughs> i mean like our jobs we're very fortunate that we have jobs that we can do a lot virtually mm -hmm. um 
We don't have to worry about um, security with our jobs. Um, we have a space that's large enough for the both of us. Um, so there are a lot of things that we feel really lucky. Um, I am high risk um, because I have pretty bad asthma. Um, with the allergist a couple weeks ago, he did this like long test and he was like, okay, so uh, you've never smoked, but uh, even though you're in your mid thirties, you have the lung age of somebody who's 67. Gosh. Uh, and so like, when you think about like high risk, he was like, yeah, you're definitely high risk. And so, you know, try to like limit where you're traveling to. And so mm -hmm. we've been trying to be really careful um, I know everybody's trying to you know, make the best decisions uh, based on the information that they receive, but you know, there's some anxiety that comes with being out whenever people are a lot healthier so they don't have to internalize that stress a little bit, but I'm really trying to do a good job of lifting up any of that extra anxiety to God while still following you know, professional medical recommendations. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. That's, it is very strange, the season that we are living in right now. It's caused me to think about things that I've never even thought about beforehand. Um, just like my mom being high risk, she's uh, she she's been battling cancer. She's battling cancer right now. She's in remission, um, but she's still high risk, and that's been something that you don't go a day without being reminded. <laughs> and it's because she's trying to uh, help me and my siblings understand like the importance of wearing a mask and stuff like that. And it's so weird that wearing a mask is kind of a divisive thing right now yeah. in, in our state. Um, but just basically wherever you land on it, like the, the thing to kind of just put in perspective is that like there are healthy people, there are people that need certain things because of their health conditions. And um, yeah, it's just been, it's been a very eye-opening, <laughs> everything that's yeah. been happening. Yeah, I know people might disagree with me, but I, like Jill and I, we've kind of talked a little, my wife and I, we've talked a little bit about how it's kind of like speeding, like if you chose to go like really fast, on, like George Bush, maybe that's your decision, but if you do it during rush hour, then you you know, potentially have the impact of impacting other people that you may not intend to. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's actually, that's a really good analogy for it. So um, to get into Tom's message this week, he, he talked about God grudges. And uh, basically, like what it means to learn to forgive God. And, and when we say forgive God, we don't mean like God has sin against you. You know, um, basically it's like something that happens to us that is, is usually not a good thing, just to kind of put a basic like vocabulary definition to it. But can you share with us like a season or a time when you really had to learn to practice that, that um, that way of forgiving God for a tough season or situation in your life. Yeah, sure. And you know, before I start, I do want to share that it's part of my personal philosophy to to think. You know, no matter how bad of an experience I've had, I know there are probably ten that have had it much worse. And so um, I, I try to keep that in mind, and I think that's helpful for me to process some of it. But specifically, um, I know that between 2010 and 2018. My wife and I, we, we tried pretty hard to uh, have a child and to get pregnant, and it turned out to be a really emotionally and financially draining process. And for us, you know, the biggest challenge was, like, just kind of not knowing what to do. Mm. Um, and we did also find out that, you know, like, if you, if you pursue things like IUI or IVF, um, what the medical professional community try to do is they will fertilize maybe, like, several eggs and then 
they will see which ones are the strongest and then they'll eliminate the others. And so for us, in our personal conviction towards where we determined that life begins, um, it was difficult for us to make a decision along with our convictions knowing that that might mean that we wouldn't have kids because mm -hmm. I remember a specific instance where we said, okay, I think we can definitely make this happen if we do this, but then we would have to selectively reduce the, the fertilized eggs. And so we were like, can you, can you define what that means? And so like for us and our own personal spiritual convictions on like when life starts, that was a hard decision for us. Um, and so, you know, we did, we tried to foster, you know, we fostered a, a beautiful little seven-year-old girl for uh, under a year. Um, and she ended up having to, you know, go live with her grandparents, but it was hard. Um, but what we decided that we wanted to pray for was peace. Um, so whether our decision was to keep trying or to keep fostering or to stop, we just wanted the prayer to be, to feel solid, um, that that's what it was. And the prayer was for both of us to feel the same way. Mm. So like any married couple, like we know that there are kind of ebbs and flows, like we might vacillate between two different options, but at different times. And uh, it took probably about six months, but it was just so rewarding and so freeing once we did have that peace. You know, still like occasionally we, you know, we'll feel sad when one of our friends goes through a milestone with their kids. Um, but it's so different than what it was. Like where before, you know, we had not yet identified that the root issue behind our anger or our sadness was that we were thinking that we would find our identity as parents. Mm -hmm. You know, we're both in education, we both love kids. Well, through college, I worked in like helping with um, a family whose dad had passed away. So I was a I was a, a man nanny. Uh, so like we loved hanging out with kids and influencing them um, and mentoring them. And the thought of us not being able to have kids felt like that would um, change our identity. And once we released the idea that our identity is not as parents, our identity is you know to be a Christ follower, um, that was really relieving for both of us. Wow. And so, how long did it did it take for you to, to reach that? Because I, I can definitely, I can confidently say that there are some people listening to our podcast right now that are um, in a season of waiting. I usually call it the uh, six day, this like the <laughs> six day problem or something. And it's like talks about like how you know God promised Joshua something. And he spent seven days marching around the, the, the city, right? He was waiting for the, the, the walls to fall down. And whenever I read that story, I always think about, like, how dumb he must have been feeling on the sixth day. Because you see God promise you something, and you see God promise everybody else something, too. And you find yourself on the sixth day wondering when this is going to happen. And so I, I feel like there are some, some listeners, like, with us right now that are uh, going through a season that of waiting that is that's similar to what you and Julie are experiencing. Can you give us some uh, just insight, just like a almost like a time frame, like how how long did it take for you to realize that that like what what God was doing in you and Julie's life? Yeah, so I think the long answer is that it took us about eight and a half years. The short answer is when we stopped telling God what to do and we started listening to mm -hmm. ask God what to do. It was about six months, I think. Um, and I think an important thing to highlight from that story of the Battle of Jericho is that 
throughout this entire time, you know that the enemy troops were at the tops of, you know, the surrounding walls, completely ridiculing, mm. you know, these soldiers that think that they're going to topple a fortress town just by walking around it and playing some instruments loudly and screaming. Mm. Um, and so I, I think sometimes it's important to help people that come after us in these kinds of life experiences to share that they might experience some ridicule, like whenever a medical professional sits in front of you and says, like, no, but literally we're telling you that it's possible. This is what you spent this money for. This is what you spent all this emotional energy on. We can make this happen. But you just have to compromise your moral convictions a little bit. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I think that's an interesting intersection of how, you know, like, non-believers and believers um, have to figure out negotiating acceptance for God's will. Yeah, I mean, to put it, to put it bluntly, it, it's courage. It, it's courage in... And what is happening, like what is known, and facing the unknown with your faith, which is something so hard to physically see in the world. And you almost sound like a crazy person like, trying to explain yeah, it to somebody right. when you're trying to step forward. Like, I mean, just back to Jericho's story, like Joshua, Joshua literally had to explain to his like friends and the soldiers, like, hey, I got some good news. I got some bad news. Good news. We're going to take down the city. We're just going to roll tide. We're going to roll by it. Bad news. You got to put down all your weapons. We're going to worship for seven straight days. And that is going to be how we topple the city. I bet they probably used the Bethel playlist. I'm guessing. Yeah, they used to definitely use the Bethel playlist. <laughs> Eight-minute versions of the songs. Um, so why do, you, why do you think it's so hard to forgive God in those seasons? I mean, I can't speak about other people's experience, but I think for me, I don't know if it was me ever really being angry with God, um, but maybe struggled with, like, well, why didn't you, or, like, maybe this isn't fair. And um, Julie and I went to college with um, a friend who is a missionary over in Hungary, and one of the things that's so fascinating, because Hungary and, like, Czechoslovakia, that whole area used to be part of the USSR, which was communist-driven, right? So it's, um, it's history as as an area ethnographically is more uh, like socialist or communist and not to say like a political thing, but what I'm saying is that I think Americans have been conditioned um, over the last 300 years to have a very individualistic perspective on a lot of things and by nature that bleeds into religion. So mm. for me, that's making me think that um, when I interpret scripture in the Bible, a lot of times it's easy for me to think what's in it for me, but mm. historically that's not what it was about for the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, and that's not what Jesus was trying to communicate in the New Testament. And, you know, of course, Jesus is our own personal God. He's big enough to rule the universe, but he's also small enough at the same time to care about my concerns and my desires. Um, but I just always have to challenge myself to make sure that I'm not making it about me when it should be about God. Mm. Yeah, that's... I love that. I love the fact that you, you pointed to that because it's, it's very easy for us, especially where we live and the time that we live in, to make the gospel about the American dream. Yeah. I think Tom talked about that like three weeks ago. We talked about how like the gospel isn't just like the American dream. It's like a calling on our lives to like reach others. Like, I have this mentor who always says like we are not the end of the New Testament's. Like, we're not the end of the story. Like, the Bible wasn't written for America in 2020, you know? And um, I think it's very important to understand that as you're reading the gospel, like, it is not about me. It's, it's about yeah. we. 
Yeah, and I would also like add to that. I mean, part of our culture, and you know, this this may not be new. Maybe this has been for centuries, and it's probably not just an American problem, but the idea of instant gratification when paired with an individualistic perspective of the gospel, I think creates a bad recipe. And so, mm-hmm. like, and what I'm realizing as I'm getting older um, is that I think where I have been maybe upset with God, really what I'm upset with is the fact that I try to impose my will on God um, instead of viewing issues from his lens. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Mood. <laughs> um, so um, you already you already touched on this in your, in your last answer where Tom, Tom this week actually talked about God being big enough to take our hurt um, and, and our doubts and our pains. Um, what are you, some steps that you would you could share with us that are practical ways of the of, um, of looking at those um, those things that God can carry? You know, like throughout this week, that maybe one of our listeners can apply to their life. Yeah. So, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're alluding a little bit to you know a lot of the challenges we've been having as a nation mm-hmm. over the last week. You know, before, you know, the last couple of months, it seems like the big polarized political issue was COVID-19 and, and like, which experts do we listen to and how do we respond? Um, but either the most recently, you know, just the challenges that we've experienced with, you know, several people groups feeling that they have tried to speak and have not been heard mm. by the American public or by governments and you know, it does take courage to speak out, you know, like regardless of what your perspective, there is a risk when you say things that, that people won't agree with you. And so specifically thinking about how do we align our response to what scripture expects from us, I think an important piece of that courage is to make sure that we are first starting by making sure that we're not just surrounding ourselves by people that agree with us. Mm. Um, I mean, social media is so interesting. Um how like Facebook's artificial intelligence works so that if they know your age, your race, your income, your occupation, where you live, um, how easily it is to find out what somebody believes. And I think what that leads to a lot of times, not just with social media, um, but even with news, we, we read the news that we want to read, and then we post things on social media to be liked by people that we know will like it. Um, and so for me, I don't think that's how we grow. Um, I know that Jesus's ministry was not, was not all about commending his disciples. I, I would argue that a lot of the scripture was him disagreeing with his disciples and pushing their thinking. Mm. Um, Jesus specifically engaged with, you know, the religious leaders that disagreed with him to create a discourse, not to shut them down, mm. not to make fun of them, um, but because... If we're going to create change, we can't shut down people that think differently than us. We have to seek their perspective. You know, like there there may be a right perspective depending on the issue. Mm. But the point is, if people don't feel comfortable in a community where we can disagree with each other in love and, and share scripture um, and to be able to share alternate perspectives, I think it's going to be difficult for us to get the change that we're wanting, whatever that change is. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that you brought up Jesus challenging the disciples because a lot of the times we focus on um, Fred Rogers Jesus instead of some of his contemporaries. You know, you know, like uh, Erica and I, my fiance, we were just discussing last night like Jesus flipping tables in the, yeah. in the church in the temple because he didn't like 
what was going on in there. Like, they were selling things. They were treated like a mall, basically. And there was, like, a bunch of, like, not... They weren't having service. They weren't having music. They weren't trying to reach people. They are trying to sell stuff. And, like, he just, like, flips tables because he's so righteously angry at what is happening. And he, and he sees, like, how unfair, unfair, like, people are being treated in that time. Right. And I completely agree. I think we need to surround ourselves with people that don't believe us. It's, it's very easy to surround, like you just said this, it's very easy for us to surround ourselves with people that agree with us. I have this one friend. He is a college pastor in Denton. And he made it a point to follow atheists on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why would you do that? But also at the same time, it's like kind of exciting because he's like able to read their point of view and not really, I don't want to say sympathize, but I, I want to use the word understand yeah. what is happening. Yeah. Um, and he explained it to me and he was like, the reason I'm doing this is because we as Christians always are so quick to divide ourselves from other groups and everything else outside of the world. And I wanted to see, I, I just always wonder what atheists say about us and what, what, what they talk about us. And so I followed him on Twitter, or I, I followed multiple. He's like, I followed all of them on Twitter because I wanted to see what their perspective is. And I was like, dang, that's crazy. Like, just taking the courage to look outside of your bubble of knowledge can just change your perspective and your point of view radically. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, I think if you polled many Americans, and I would argue most evangelical Christians, right, and I think that a lot of people in the Reclamation Church would would, uh, probably claim themselves as evangelical Christians, I think that if you polled people and you asked them their issue on one or two political issues, I bet with 80 or 90% accuracy, somebody could predict how you stand for the rest of your issues. I'm not just talking about, you know, like religious things, right? But for me, another example of what courage looks like is stepping outside of your political affiliation. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there is a group of people that says, you know, for you to be a Christian, you must be a Democrat. Or for you to be a Christian, you must be a Republican. But I think the challenge is, it, it sounds like, Politically, it's impossible for you to be pro-life, but also realize that Jesus calls us to support poor young mothers, right? Mm-hmm. Or just because you are pro-immigration does not mean that you're against a fiscally responsible government. And I think that we allow ourselves to be labeled, to your point, and to be, I guess, pigeonholed into what our beliefs are. And I don't know if that's because, you know, a lot of Americans typically only get their news from one or two outlets. Um, but if somebody's wanting to be courageous and to learn what that complex, nuanced experiences besides just me, like, for example, like, I'm a white male Christian, if I want to know and be able to better understand the plight of people that are not white male Christians, it's important to broaden my horizons. And so mm. websites like allsides.com are helpful because... It will help you see where different news outlets fall. It also provides like a factual, um, I guess, assessment and audit to find out um, the sources that it quotes. Are they reputable based off of like 
research articles and things like that. Hmm. Interesting. I, wow, that's that's a really good perspective. I, I really love the fact that you highlighted how we are so quick to um, self-prognose ourselves, but also like other people as well, just based off what. And it's, it all has to do with us making assumptions, what somebody believes, what somebody stands with. Yeah, I really love that. Jeffrey, and I'm guilty of that too, right? I think oh, we yeah. all are. Yeah, I'm definitely, like, definitely guilty of that too. <laughs> uh, Jefferson Bethke actually wrote a book. Um, I can't remember when it came out. But it's called Jesus is Greater Than Religion. Mm-hmm. And that was his whole premise. was like, Christianity isn't Republican. Christianity isn't Democratic. Isn't Democrat. Democratic. Um, well, I would argue he's not democratic either, yeah, right? Yeah, it's kind of, it's pretty much a monarchy if you like really think <laughs> yeah. about it. But um, he, he just argued that like it's so easy to just like like he doesn't put it this way, but this is how I think of it. It's so easy to just like bundle things. Oh yeah, you know, it's human nature. The research shows it. Yeah, it's like TV and internet. Well, why don't you try like Republican or Democrat Christianity? You know, yep. that comes with uh, your HBO Max subscription and you're also pro-life. Yeah. And that's that's your that's your bundle. You know, I'm so that's so interesting. I'm going to have to get that from you before I leave, because, uh, yeah, like for me in education, a lot of what we look into is um, what's called implicit bias. Uh, are you familiar with implicit bias? No, I'm not. OK, that's totally fine. So for the listeners that are Don't be biased because I'm <laughs> Hey, you know what? I love jobs. <laughs> Uh, so, um, sociologists and anthropologists um, and um, other scientists have really figured out that implicit bias is, I mean, it's not always tied to race, but it's the fact that our mind, by its nature, I think the way that God designed it, is to be as efficient as possible. And so, your mind often will make up to 10 decisions every single second subconsciously. Um, and I think a lot of it comes from like generations of like trying to figure out like what is safe and what's not safe so i know if i see like anything that's like slithering on the ground without legs my brain subconsciously knows oh okay like that may not be a dangerous snake but i'm going to treat it like a dangerous snake until i can figure out if it's a dangerous snake or not right Right. and you know now yeah in 2020 that you can have pop rocks and coke at the same time (laughs) whereas when my dad was in high school he would have freaked out and been like yeah you're gonna keep you're gonna die (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, I think that's an interesting point that, um, you know, the challenge is God created us, and then sin entered the world, right? And so what happens is we um, we let sin sometimes creep into those subconscious thoughts, not on purpose, and, and honestly, a lot of it is not even our fault for how we have created these implicit biases, but mm. everybody has them, research shows, um, and there's this really fascinating um, online test through Harvard, if you just Google Harvard Implicit Bias Test um, has all these different categories where it will test you, like where it'll pair like harmless things or harmful things um, compared to like a different type of area where people are typically discriminated against. So people that are able-bodied versus that have a disability, people that are obese or thin, people who are white or African-American, Native Americans, has this whole slew of tests where you can find out. And what it does is it tests you uh, based on like how many milliseconds it takes for you to sort between the two, um, and it is fascinating, and um, you get results that are very uncomfortable. Wow! But I think that goes to our discussion. What we're talking about, like what yeah. takes courage? What takes courage is recognizing the fact that we might not perceive ourselves as prejudiced, 
but as a I'm trying to think think of how to say this, but as a culmination of our experiences growing up mm. and the effort for our brain to be as efficient as possible, it makes generalizations and assumptions that have worked their way into our subconscious, even if we don't want them to, right? Mm. Um, and so the first step of taking that courage is to find out like, you know, a heart exam to find out through Holy Spirit audit, like where do I possibly have some of those biases so that I can figure out how to unpack them so that we don't have you know, a, a relationship with Jesus that is based off of religion or politics, but is mm. based on the issues that we find in Scripture. Yeah, that, that, I love that. And, and I, I would venture to say that we are in a very divisive season in our, in our country. Um, there, there are a lot of things coming to light, and the world is asking how we, the church, are going to respond to it. And so I guess, like, for my final question, I, I just want to ask, what, what do you think is, like, a practical role for us here at, at Reclamation or even just the 2020, 2020 church? Okay, so uh, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I always build up to it, and then I just drop it. And you're like, and you have seven seconds to answer probably. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you have a shot clock. Okay, so, I'm, you know, I'm just going to qualify this by saying I'm going to do the best that I can with this answer, knowing that this work is messy, and that's because we live in a world full of sin where Satan wants nothing except for us to feel divided, especially among our church and among believers, because he knows the biggest enemy that he has is a unified body that is trying to live out the church the way Christ intended it. So I would say that the church's primary purpose is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ as a life-changing gospel designed to lead every aspect of our lives to live the way that Christ did. So, therefore, our secondary purpose is to mirror Christ's love and actions to the world around us and to be that salt and light that he talks about in Matthew, right? So, I believe that our church cannot play that role until we know what the local community needs from us and have trained ourselves as a congregation to meet that need. Hmm. So, like, for example, while I know that the recent racial events are a really polarizing issue, I really think that we have to talk about it as a church because... You know, a large number of peaceful demonstrations in the past week have been organized by churches who have lived within that world of discrimination and have deep relationships with people of color that they understand. And so they realize that it's their duty, as Christ called us, for us to speak up, uh, not in hate, but in empathy, love, and solidarity and patience for people that maybe are on a, a different speed or a different stage of the journey of understanding what it's like to be a person of color in America. And I recognize the irony of that is I am a white man trying to relate the experience of somebody of color. Um, but I think that's part of the challenge is we have to listen when people of color are speaking up, whether they're within our congregation or not. Um, there might be some things that we disagree with, but Jesus listened and then he addressed, right? Mm. Um, I know that if you bring up the idea of structural racism or white supremacy with white people, the room gets super tense. And if people are listening, their heart's probably beating faster, like mine is, uh, and I get it. Um, but like, I think that even if it's awkward and uncomfortable, the people that we serve will be better for it because the fact remains that I saw serious racism when I was a principal, kid on kid, like a five-year-old is not born racist. A five-year-old does not scream the N-word at another child in the class 
unless they've been conditioned by society. And I want to be really clear, I've never met anybody at Reclamation Church that is racist, but I have experienced people saying microaggressions towards people of color or talking about their experiences. And I know it's not intentional. Everybody has these implicit biases, but we can't fix the problem until we look at our hearts. Mm. And we've realized that we all have room to grow. I know I do, especially. Um, but it's unfortunate for the people that I know of color, everyone that I've talked to that shared their experiences have shared that people that have done that to them are believers in Christ. Yeah. And if we are supposed to be a place where people who have been burned by church come to learn a relationship with Jesus for the first time in a safe way, we have to talk as a church about how do we have these conversations or we're going to be excluding a large percentage of our very local community because when we look in this neighborhood, it is a different demographic than what a lot of our, our church demographic is. And I don't, again, I, I don't think that's intentional at all, but we have to examine ourselves as a church and as a heart in order for us to move forward with um, helping with that hurt that our community is experiencing. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely, I, I agree. I think there, we need to be able to examine where we are at in this divisive season. Um, we, Erica always says this, she goes, a church is not a place no more than it should be a hospital. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. And I, I just, I completely agree with it. I think wherever you find yourself on the spectrum of, of what is happening in, in our country, what needs to be acknowledged is the fact that we need to be an oasis. Yeah. And we need to be loving. And we need to be ready to embrace everyone no matter what. One of the things, and you've probably heard me tell the students this, is that, man, like, Jesus calls us to love. But, like, when you think about his, his, like, lessons and what he teaches, like, he does not call us to love comfortably sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's not only, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently, it's like, it's not only the oppressed, it's the oppressor that he also calls us to love. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's really hard to do sometimes. It's very easy to, um, it's very easy sometimes to love someone that is is being hurt you know know, like jesus also loved the pharisees and he also loved the tax collectors and he sat with them and you know he didn't really he didn't agree with what the prostitutes were doing he didn't agree with what the tax collectors were doing he didn't agree with the pharisees but the power of sitting with them and loving with them and sharing with them and breaking bread with them like that just speaks so much more volumes than any word could ever do. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because maybe there are listeners that are thinking society is moving too slowly in terms of trying to figure out how to help this hurting community. And I think one thing that Julie and I talk about is like this gratitude that we work for an organization that spent a lot of money on training, continual training to make sure that we are better able to understand. But like, honestly, if I was in a different organization, I probably might think the same things that I thought 10 or 15 years ago. Um, And so, you know, I just encourage those people to have 
patience and still to love strongly and uncomfortably like what you're talking about while we create safe environments for people to have these conversations about oppression in whatever form that looks like. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for talking to me. You are actually, I don't know if you know this, but you are a very special guest because you are our first non-staff member. <laughs> that is. Well, I mean, yeah, I kind of, I guess. You're an ex-staffer, but... Yeah, there you go. But you're our first, like, non-staff person that I've interviewed here at Reclamation. And I just felt like it was so important for us to get a point of view from somebody that isn't on the leadership team here. I just felt like it was cool to, like, talk to somebody that attends Reclamation and actively serves and I see you every every middle school day when you're helping the middle schoolers and it's always it's always been just a pleasure to talk to you so thank thank you so much for no, absolutely me. like I'm clearly very invested in this church we've been here for a while and um, yeah you're right we actively serve because we, we believe in this church right and so like I hope any listeners if they're wondering like what does this look like for me or like what are maybe my next steps and you don't know what to do you know I hope you reach out to the staff at Reclamation or just even to me. Um, I would love to be able to sit down with you or send you resources to help you have this tough conversation with yourself, especially if um, you're beginning the journey as a white person understanding, trying to begin to understand the challenges that other people experience. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you. Have a great day, John. For more information on Reclamation Church, please visit our website at re.church. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at re.churchplano. Join us on Sunday at 10.30 a.m. live via Facebook Live or our website as we wrap up our series, Let It Go, with Pastor Tom Wilson. That being said, have a great rest of your week. Stay safe. Please wash your hands. And we'll see you on Monday.